Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Leeds Library, the Leeds Library's podcast series in which we talk to members of our extended community about their lives, their work, and their relationship to books, libraries, and literature. Founded in 1768, the Leeds Library is the oldest surviving subscription library in the UK, and throughout this series we'll also be diving periodically into the library's rich history to find out what makes us and our members one of the most interesting and unique cultural institutions in Leeds and the UK. I'm Molly McGrath, the Projects Assistant at the Leeds Library, and today our guest is Lisa Di Tommaso. Lisa is the librarian at Morab Library in Penzance, the sixth largest independent library in the UK, which is now over 200 years old. Originally from Brisbane, Australia, Lisa moved to London in 2002, firstly working for the National Trust before becoming a special collections librarian at the Natural History Museum. Prior to moving to Penzance in 2018, she was the head of collections at Durham Cathedral, managing the library, object collections and its new open treasure museum. Um, Hello and welcome, Lisa. Thank you very much for talking to me today on the Leeds Library podcast. Um, So we're going to talk about the Morab Library, where you're the librarian, a bit later. Um, But I firstly just want to ask you a little bit about your background in libraries and literature. um, And why were you drawn to librarianship in the first place? What was your journey into libraries like? Uh, well, thank you for having me, Molly. It's a real pleasure. Um, librarianship was a funny journey. I um, I fell into it, really. Um, in my last year at university back in Australia, doing my history degree, um, my mother passed away. And I was a bit of, I was at a bit of a loss after that about what to do next. Um, and the opportunity of a librarianship master's came up, so I took it. And really, I haven't looked back since then. Um, I do remember being a little offended at the time at high school, though, because my my classmates voted me the most likely to become a librarian. I remember being (laughs) horrified at the prospect, but obviously they knew a lot more about me than I did at that time. So so funny. I really I I had this idea a while ago to do a kind of um, uh, a roundtable of librarians discussing the stereotypes of of being the librarian and and what was true and what wasn't. but then I thought it might be it might be it might become dangerously um, uh, it, it might um, reinforce those stereotypes maybe <laughs> that the opposite know. effect funny, but then it? I but but not I mean I guess you're you don't seem like a you can't, you're a stereotypical librarian and nor does Jane our librarian here so yeah that's true we were determined when I was at university at library school as we called it when I was at library school with my colleagues, we all decided we were scared. We were very scared of the librarians at university. They were mm. they're a scary bunch of people and a bit unapproachable. So we decided, back in nineteen eighty eight, that we were going to be the young Turk librarians who were going to change the world of librarianship and be friendly yeah. and approachable. <laughs> and that's in a way, it's kind of it's quite funny. Yeah, because they thought, no, we need to be able to welcome people and make them feel like no question is too silly. And yeah, it's yeah, always yeah. been in the back of my mind, actually. Well, there is this stereotype that librarians are really cold and scary, but actually I've not found that to be true. Every librarian that I've met has been incredibly kind of warm and generous. Um, I, think, I think we're always keen to show off our knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to help. We're like, yeah. no, you must know this. We know this, so you must know this, or we must be able to help you find what you need. Yeah. It's, a, it's definitely a service role. It's definitely a, a need to help people. Yeah, and you've well, you've worked with some fantastic collections in the UK, um, including the Natural History Museum. Um, and can you tell me a little bit about working with the special collections there? 
I will, yes. I was extremely lucky. I fell on my feet when I arrived in London. I, I came for a late in life gap year. Um, oh, okay. And that was 20 years ago. I kind of <laughs> never went home. <laughs> but um, but within that 20 years, I was very privileged privileged to work at the Natural History Museum for almost 10 years alongside um, some amazing colleagues and um, helping the scientists and the curators with their research. Um, so I got to work with collections like the artwork from Captain Cook's three voyages around the world, um, the art of the convicts and the officers from the first fleet when the convict colony was established in Australia in 1788. I worked with pages from Charles Darwin's Origin of Species manuscript, um, beautiful botanical art from Franz Bauer, who was the Kew Gardens artist, mm. manuscript collection of the fossil collector Mary Anning, works by Audubon and Humboldt and Carl Linnaeus. It's all a bit surreal when I think back mm. on it. Um, so we create, curated and cared for the collections and we made them available for researchers and for exhibitions. And I even got to do some international courier trips walking around the world. That so was amazing. an amazing time. Oh my goodness, where did you go? Well, I was lucky enough whenever there was a trip to Australia in order, yeah. my <laughs> lovely boss let me take the, take the paintings back to Australia. But I also got to go to um, a few places in Europe, Delft, which was amazing. I went wow. to Vienna. Um, it was just marvellous. Terrifying. The responsibility is enormous for yeah. you know, getting these things on and off flights and not losing them. Yeah. <laughs> just marvellous opportunities. So. Yeah. And you, you published a book um, with the, the Natural History Museum, The Art of the First Fleet. Uh, can you tell me a bit about that? That's right. During my time at the museum, we established a permanent art gallery um, at the museum where we displayed the artwork from various collections. Mm. And I was lucky enough to write the exhibition catalogue relating to the First Fleet exhibition, which involved choosing all the images that went on display and then writing captions for each and then also writing an overall introduction to the subject. So it was the first time I'd written anything like that. It was a huge challenge, but mm. really rewarding, actually, really rewarding. And how does, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, so obviously the Natural History Museum is, is a museum, so you're working not necessarily just with text, but with objects mm. um, and other kind of materials. How does that compare to, to being a librarian, would you say? It was fascinating, really, because while we primarily looked after the books and, and helped with the archive collections and, and were the conduit to the the text and the information behind the specimens that the scientists mm. were working with. Um, it meant we also got access to a lot of the um, actual mm. physical collections as well, which was such a joy. And it kind of, it brought the subject to life a lot more by being able to physically handle the objects that were scientifically illustrated in a book or talked about. Like, for example, I got to hold Charles Darwin's features, which he made amazing discoveries from and wrote up wow. in his book you know so and from a subject librarian point of view is an extraordinary opportunity to sort of see where all these words were actually did mean something and, and were still relevant in a way to, mm. to scientific research today mm. that's really interesting and I I suppose also it's then that's incredibly different working for this really big national and and kind of internationally renowned institution that's different from working with much smaller collections and libraries so how did you find that difference and and do you have a preference or are they both kind of equally good and bad 
it, it often feels like chalk and cheese, to be honest. Mm. Um, I think the main difference I found is that it's all around resourcing. So mm. in a large institution like the museum and at Durham Cathedral, where I also worked, um, there are a team of specialist colleagues on hand and we all work together for the aim. So there were catalogers and conservators and fundraising teams and marketing experts and subject specialists all sort of on tap. Mm-hmm. And I found in now at the Morab, in, in like most other independent libraries, you don't have that team around you. You're, you're pretty much on your own. Mm. And you have to try and manage many of those aspects yourself. So even if you don't do the work yourself, you have to take the lead and at least need to look like you know what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you're like inspiring others or, or, or directing others in their way. Yeah, you have so, to be really dynamic. So you do. In an independent library, I think you have to trust yourself more to make appropriate decisions and look for different ways to collaborate with people mm. who can help you because they're just not in the next office. So there's not that luxury of having all that knowledge on tap. Mm. But at the same time, that can be a good thing because you end up having a little bit more control over things and you can work with the trustees and others over how the library is managed and deciding what we can offer. And mm. you can also try and do things a bit differently to the norm. You're not yeah. you're not beset by the constructs yeah. of what a standard library or is, is meant to behave like or meant to, to offer. Yeah, well, that, so, no, that's really true. You, you have to be flexible and you have to be dynamic, but that means that you can be and you can be uh, different and you can, uh, you know, the turnaround for projects is, is much shorter because you can, have the, you can have these ideas and then, you know, if you have the capacity, you can make them happen. Ah, uh, yes, having to go through too, like though, 10 departments. Yeah, well, yeah. Projects take a really long time because you don't have all the people on board to be able to well, do it yeah. as well. But that's fine because independent libraries are unique animals and yeah. amazing places. And yeah. I think that's why people like them so much. Yeah. They so tell something different. So tell me about how you discovered the, the Morab library and how you came to be the librarian <laughs> there. Oh, again, I've been lucky. <laughs> um, I was so lucky that the first two places I worked in when I came to London on this gap year that got longer, um, I only worked in beautiful buildings. So my first job was at the um, National Trust head office in London. Mm. So that was a grade two listed building right by St. James's Park and Westminster Abbey and just wow. had a croquet lawn that we played at lunchtime and everything it was just bonkers and crazy and I loved it um and then after that I ended up at the Natural History Museum which speaks for itself and then um I moved on to the absolutely stunning Durham Cathedral um so when I was looking to leave Durham hand on heart I was determined I was just never going to work in a boring building again or with a boring collection yeah so um I saw the advertisement for the Morab role and I was smitten by the images of the library. Um, and when I came for my interview, I quickly fell in love with the ethos of the place too. So. Mm. And then once I realised how lovely all the staff and the members of the volunteers were, that was it. Mm. It's a love affair. And it is very beautiful. And, and that part of the, the country is so beautiful, isn't it? It's in, so the Morab is in um, Penzance. That's oh, right. Yes. We're, we're and, two streets from the sea that there are sea views from the top oh windows. And, and you have all and of these, also, um, sorry, because it's it's almost kind of, it's like subtropical, isn't it? Down there. So you have all these amazing plants and, yeah. and palm trees and things. It looks it, really it's like set a, in these a different amazing country gardens. altogether. Yeah. It, yeah. It's set in these beautiful subtropical gardens. So in the summer when everything's just 
bursting with life the plants sort of come in through the windows when you open them and it's that amazing and all you hear is bird song and buzzing bees and it's all a bit magical really (laughs) (laughs) so it was it was established in 1818 the morab um, and it's the only surviving independent library in Coolnall. but can you tell me a little bit more about its history um how it kind of has changed over the years and and then i guess also what it is now how it functions at the moment Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we were established in 1818. It was by the great and the good of the town, like the mayor and the head of the bank and all those who wanted a library. Obviously, it predates public libraries, so this was all there were. And um, we kicked around various locations for 70 years. We we kept expanding and moving into different places and falling out with um, shared premises, like the (laughs) geological society that we fell out with. Um, and at the same time, this beautiful house we're in now was built by a family in the 1840s. They were wealthy brewers, um, which was a good industry to be in in Penzance back then mm. with all the mining and the fishing industries. Um, so they owned the house and all of the land around the house. And in 1889, when they sold up, the council bought the estate so they could turn the gardens into public gardens. They were determined to be like a civilised seaside town and have a bandstand and tennis courts and all the things mm. that a good seaside resort should have. And um, But they didn't know what to do with the house, so they put it up for rent. And the library, who again was looking for a, a bigger premise, somewhere else more permanent to, to move to, uh, competed with the YMCA um, to take over the premises. And we were just, it was decided we were more civilised so uh, the Morrow Library moved in in 1889 and we've been here ever since. So essentially we moved into a family home and there's still a lot of the original fittings, the wallpaper on the wall and the light fittings and the, the, the fireplaces are all sort of original family home. Um, family home. So it, it's just a really beautiful place. So the library just kept growing and growing and, and survived a lot of donations from various benefactors over the time. Um, and until here we are now, and I'm now in a position where I have no room. We built an extension in 2013, and all that space has been taken up. And <laughs> it's so interesting how uh, independent libraries are, they're so different from one another, and some are like wildly different. And I think it's part of their nature that they're a bit quirky and, uh, and off centre. But actually, a lot of the the stories of how they've grown and developed over the years are there's so many parallels. There's so many parallels between. The, the Leeds Library and the Morab kind of um, expanding and moving and, uh, you know, they're established by the same kinds of people. And it's so interesting to, to think about those parallels. And I think too, after that, the, the way it progresses in more modern times is almost to do with the community that's around you. Mm. Um, because the, the Penzanian community is far different to the, um, the central Leeds community yeah. that, you, that you serve so and so your service almost evolves to meet what's needed out in the community I think at times yeah. so if you're doing your job right that's what it's doing um so that's really interesting that you say that you're kind of you're, the what the library has evolved to be is kind of um that's done in conjunction with with the kind of members of the public that it serves and and the people in its kind of local community so with that in mind I guess what what is the library doing at the moment what kind of events um do you have I had a look at your website and some of them look really exciting some of your programming um and and you are also like us a, a membership 
library um mm -hmm. but you're are you can uh you're borrowing library or um yes we are we um we we run as a normal library and then mm -hmm. with sort of extras on top if you like mm -hmm. our membership is kept deliberately low to reflect the socioeconomic status of the of the area in which we serve um and it means we have a brilliant eclectic membership and all sorts of people join which is great yeah um so yeah so a, a normal week in the library is 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 quite bonkers but good fun so people can come and borrow books um so we get lots of members popping in and out at the book collections or they can also use tables that we um have reserved upstairs um so they can get on with their work and write and create while they're staring out to sea and having a cup of tea so we're very relaxed about tea drinking here too <laughs> we run on tea at the morrow library um, normally each week there'll be at least one or two classes running so we have a regular shakespeare group that's been running for 15 years where mary takes classes through plays um, each term and then there's often an art or sometimes a philosophy course or, or things like that running as well um, during the week we also have a poetry group that meets fortnightly. And then we also um, have a talks program where mm. at least monthly, often more, um, we run talks for the members on various topics, all sorts of topics. And then we host all of our volunteers as well. We have um, very few staff, but around 70 volunteers mm. without whom we wouldn't open our doors. And they do the cataloging, the conservation, the scanning of photographs. Um, they work at the circulation desk and they do everything else in between for us. Um, so there's always a number of them working away on various projects as well. So they're, they're an incredible bunch of people. And um, yeah, but there's also, we, we pride ourselves on, on sort of a personal service here where we know people and we know their stories and mm -hmm. so we always try to make sure there's at least some time in the day to stop and chat with members and volunteers make sure they're okay or find out what's going on with them because it's as much about being a drop-in place for a lot of members we have some members who just pop in and have a cup of tea every day mm. maybe never borrow a book but it's where they meet their friends or where they sort of get stimulation in other ways so it, it's quite lovely yeah definitely uh, I think it's um uh libraries are actually a really I remember being at university and the the library was kind of a, <laughs> a place where you'd go just to hang around and not really do that much work uh -huh. and just chat to people everyone's university experience is different but yeah uh, <laughs> there was certainly a good social element of it for me and I think that the we can see that in in the Leeds library as well it's definitely kind of a hub for people it's a um, thing, isn't it? It's a safe place to come. You can make yourself a cup of tea. You can read the paper or you can chat to anyone about any subject. You can find interesting people to talk to who are in, mm. you know, doing specialist research or and put people in touch with each other who have shared interests as well. That's another thing that mm. happens here. Like someone will come in and say, Oh, what have you got on industrial mining technology or you know? some sort of quite yeah. good subject and, and we'll be like oh Cedric knows the answer to that yeah yeah like, and I you in touch with him and it's marvelous you know yeah and I think that that means that the libraries again like we were saying they come to reflect the people who are members there and the history of the people who are members there and the history of the area and that's one thing that I think it makes them so unique because 
you know that's you, you go to a public library maybe to, to find information about the rest of the world but maybe an independent library to find information about the history of the area you mm -hmm. know um, and I know that you guys have a, a really extensive Cornish collection so you've got 3,000 books printed in the 16th and 18th centuries manuscripts relating to various local families long runs of periodicals and local newspapers prints engravings and Cornwall photographic archive um, can you tell me a bit about that uh, I'm just this is this is from your your website this information but <laughs> it sounds really amazing that you're kind of able to tell the the story of readers and reading in your local area um, and yeah as I think we also have a kind of similar collection at the Leeds Library and I think that's one of the real arguments mm. for independent libraries to to exist. I think, I think you're right the um the Cornish collection here is really quite extensive um and it's used heavily by researchers here actually um visiting researchers who come from further afield but also many local local people who are interested in researching their area um yeah between the book and the photographic and the archive collections we hold a really eclectic and rare selection of resources um mostly because many of them were were acquired by donation over the last 200 years and that still continues today so while we still obviously purchase new um, books over the years to supplement collections. Um, the archives are largely donated and there's some real treasures amongst them with, within the Cornish collections. I think what makes them really special is that they tell the individual stories of local people. Mm. So we have an 18th century logbook of a farmer's meteorological readings on their farm and scrapbooks of literal literally glued in seaweed collections yeah. that were collected oh, on wow. the shoreline and moss and other things as well glued into these books and diaries of people's travels and letters from the from the big families of Cornwall and all their correspondence and ledgers and yeah and I think it helps us develop our understanding of individuals who lived and work in Penwith which is what we call West Cornwall they're like tangible people and it's not just statistical information or or we know you know how many fish were caught in this year it, it's telling people's real life stories mm. that's what I love about the Cornish collections here and I think I think it paints a really good picture of the resilience of the people of Penwith and all they've mm. dealt with the, the tough work that required that was required of them in the mining and the fishing industries and when they were both booming but also now that they're not and mm. and it really shows the Cornish to be a proud hardy group of people who, who really look out for each other and I, what I love about the collections is that sort of really is reflected. Um, mm. and you can see that tangibly as you look at our collections here. That sounds so amazing. And do you have, um, I guess then you, you have members who can come in and, and trace their, their families if their families have been members in the past. We sometimes have that here where you people come in and they find their kind of relatives who are who were members in like the 1800s or something. Oh, we're not so good on that. Our membership records are appalling. Oh, <laughs> oh okay. But what we have is an amazing number of, um, let's say, more mature members mm. who remember the library back mm. in the 1950s or mm -hmm. remember the president from who was still around in 1940-something, you know, and yeah. the stories they have about the library and it's passed and what went on it's amazing my predecessor Annabelle um, the previous librarian here was here for 30 years so 
there wasn't anything she didn't know about the library and she still has this amazing memory for names and yeah. places. so she'll still tell me amazing stories about members from the past and yeah. how they connected now to people and and it's just awesome I love it and the um the photographic archive has has over 15 thousand prints and negatives um of antiquities places people and events in west cornwall um which is really amazing and is it was it made into a book was there a book published with the these photographs in i just say that because it might not be but my my grandparents live in cornwall i remember a book of really these amazing black and white photographs of cornwall um, oh. in their house it might be something different but it might have been another one I think we've we've published books like the treasures of the Morab which includes photographic yeah. archives but I think the plan is still in place to try and publish a yeah. book in the future but, well no because I was going to say you have this amazing online archive that's the thing which is is really incredible and you can just go through and look at all of these images and and actually in a way that's much more accessible to a lot of people mm-hmm. than than a published book um so yeah can you can you tell me about the, the photographic archive and and the kind of digital digital archive you've got on online absolutely yeah um like the other collections it, it really started with donations um we were really lucky to be gifted the richards family collection and they were three generations of a local professional photography fan mm-hmm. so that started as the basis of the collection and then people have been giving us their photographs and slides and, and negatives ever since so this is why we've got to as many as we have now but what I really love about the photo archive is that it's a it's a great shining example of a brilliant community volunteer project Mm. from the manager down everyone who works shifts in there are volunteers um and we have people that scan the images but we also have others who write the metadata that goes with that and as I mentioned before they're often our more mature members who remember what that house looked like in 1952 and can recognize the the people who lived in it so they know Mm. faces and places and so they provide that sort of story behind the picture wherever we can there's also an awful lot we don't recognize but we are gifted with that extraordinary knowledge of the local people to add to the to add to the knowledge we have have. and yeah all of the images that we scanned so far and I think about two-thirds of the collection has been scanned in the last Mm. 10 years or so um they're all available free to view on the library website so, and they are used extensively again by by local people doing research mm. into their sort of family home and their family history, right through to you know the BBC looking for images for documentaries and things. Yeah, Cornwall has this kind of really, as you were saying, this kind of really rich and amazing history, and actually it has a a, a real literary history as well, and it's been home to some fantastic writers, um, both who were who were born in Cornwall and who have who have come to to live and write there from other places. Um, but because of how geographically far away it is from from most other places in the UK, I imagine that often the work you do or or that kind of history and, and heritage can go a bit unnoticed um, or at least provide some barriers to engagement. So I wonder how you found your that your location affects the work you do and how you kind of work around that and and engage the local community and also I guess the rest of the the UK and the work that you do I mean we've just talked about the digital archive which is amazing Mm. and that you know I think we've all kind of learned over the lockdown that digital resources mean that the you know libraries work can be accessed anywhere in the world which is amazing true Um, I wonder if you have any any thoughts on that 
We are getting there. Um, you're absolutely right. Cornwall is such a long way from anywhere. But interestingly, even within Cornwall, it often feels that there's distance between us here in West Cornwall mm. and with everyone in the north and the east of Cornwall, like going beyond Truro, which is like 40 minutes up the road, it's like <laughs> a massive road trip anywhere then. So, um, yeah, there's an interesting culture, I think, within West Penrith that, that mm. we are really the very end of the world in some ways because we're closer to Land's End than anywhere else. Yeah. Um, so obviously, yeah, the biggest barrier for us is distance. It's hard to partner up and collaborate too widely because it's not just the distance, but it's the time you need to travel anywhere to, to make those connections. Um, so we do tend to work locally together. Um, mm. We've built some really wonderful networks within Penzance. There's other institutions like the Hypatia Trust there's the lovely public library and there's also Penley House Museum here in town. And we also have Crescent Kernow, which is the Cornish archives just up the road in Red Roof. So we're always looking for ways to support and collaborate and promote each other's work where we can and mm. building sort of this idea of this like Penwith or Penzanian culture, you know, hub, mm. if you like, um, but we also work closely with local writers and artists and look for ways to support them too. So we host artists in residence here and I'm looking to establish a writer in residence program soon mm. to make sure that the local um, the local talent is is promoted and, and people mm. know about them. Um, and we are also kicking and screaming our way into the 21st century. The more I was a bit behind on that, apart from the photo archive. <laughs> Um, but we're working really hard to enhance our expertise to allow more mm. digital collaboration, which would help then mitigate that tyranny of distance. So we're putting our archives records onto the National Archives database um, so that the whole world can search for, okay. for what's held in the Warrior Library archives. That's a volunteer project. We're cataloging our books finally because we currently use the card index and we're, we're slowly probably over about 10 years transforming that into a digital catalog that will be made available so people will know what books we hold here yeah um, so it's all it's all happening slowly we're well, we're embracing it very slowly but but we're getting yeah no well you talk about these amazing networks that you've managed to build up and I know that volunteering and your volunteers mm. are such a such an integral part to the work you do and and the more as a, a kind of culture and a space um and you gave a really amazing talk at the independent libraries association's annual conference which we had here at the the leeds library uh last summer about lockdown and the work that more did over the lockdown um and the kind of the amazing response that you had from members of your community um both volunteers and and members um so yeah could you briefly tell me uh about that because it really was one of the kind of the memorable points of the conference I think because it was such a it was so warm and you got this real sense that you guys were kind of uh such a strong kind of community and had this real spirit um That's so kind thank you <laughs> um yeah well <laughs> When the library closed in, in March, we all thought it was a couple of months and then we realised it was going to go on for a lot longer. Um, I was genuinely concerned about how we were going to maintain contact with the members. As mm. I just mentioned, not having a digital catalogue or anything, we weren't able to offer anything like click and collect. So it was just no click option. And, yeah. And I sort of felt like we were just going to disappear down a hole. And So my staff and I got together and we decided that we'd start sending a weekly email to our members. 
which is basically a list of all the free things you could do online while you're trapped at home. So it was when streaming became free for everything. So we were streaming links to classical music concerts and theatre and films, and but also like silly things like watching ancient grandmas initially making pasta and <laughs> ballet for over 50 years. That Pasta and, Grannies, the YouTube yeah, channel. I love amazing. that channel. I love it. <laughs> They're really cool. They went down really well. So we every week we just send out these links going, oh, if you're stuck at home, you might try this, or here's a nice blog about some Cornish mm. history, or just, and it became really um, eclectic and also very cultish. But mm. members were like, hey, this is great. <laughs> when lockdown stopped, we were forced to continue that. Yeah. <laughs> Because I won't let us stop it because it was such a good thing. So we still do it. But we also, um, I was aware that, you know, a number of our members were very vulnerable and very much on their own. So um, mm-hmm. we kept in regular touch with them. We phoned them and emailed them and, and just made sure they were doing okay. And occasionally I would, you know, get some books out from the library and hand them over to them on a street corner or something, you know, just so they didn't run out of reading material and things like that. And also just yeah. to have that connection. Um, but my biggest issue was that of our over 600 members, there were 130 that weren't on email um, and who were really, in, many, in, most, in most cases, the most vulnerable and the elderly, you know, mm. who, who would never embrace technology. So they were used to getting a newsletter a couple of times a year from us. But I started writing to them quite regularly, like every few weeks. Mm. I had no news for them, but I just write them a nice letter and say we were thinking of them and that the library missed them. And I'd send photos of the library and I asked them to keep in touch to send, yeah, let us know how they were going. And I started receiving all these beautiful postcards and cards and the photos saying, no, I'm okay. Here's a picture of me in my garden and we're okay. Don't worry about us. And But what I found, it became a really beautiful mutual support network. So mm. I was getting so much strength and support from these people because I was at a bit lost about you know I think all of us were like what's going to what's the future how's this all going to work out and having their support and their love makes such a difference to me and I think the whole upshot of all of this was um what was also really cool is that there was no question of anyone not renewing their membership even though the library was closed people renewed in droves and because they were determined that the library wasn't going to suffer or close or they wanted yeah. to make sure that we would still be there at the end of all of this. Um, and if it makes sense, I really feel like it brought us all closer together. I mm. feel like I got a really better understanding of the membership and what what they got from the library, what they found valuable about it, and, and a real insight. And that's helped shape my decision-making about future programs and projects for the library because I now have a better idea of what the members find important and and value Mm. the most and I think it probably focused their minds a bit too about how the library influences them or helps them Mm. so there's just this it's terrible there's just this mutual loving it's (laughs) (laughs) so it's all really lovely so we're almost sort of back to normal now yeah and and it's it's just everyone's just so yeah. happy to be back I think there's it's just a really happiness around yeah yeah it was a really amazing um story and and I think it really highlighted actually a lot of the mutual struggles that and joys that all independent libraries face and you know whether that's to do with technology and accessibility or you know 
demographics of members and and communicating or or what have you there is so much kind of you know mutual struggle and and mm. um but you know rewarding aspects as well but I wonder with that in mind post-covid and looking into the future um what do you see as the kind of the struggles that independent libraries will face um in the coming years I think um front of mind for me here at the Morab Library and I suspect it's likely the same for most other independent libraries is just the biggest struggle is resourcing and the lack mm -hmm. of both staff and money we're, we're on a constant lookout for ways to increase our income and be sustainable and uh, finding the funds to maintain a grade two listed building and all of that sort of going on so that's just the standard I think that we all face but I also think there's a slightly wider issue about our need to remain or, or become even more relevant to the community around us we, we touched mm. on this before but I think being a resource that's vital and useful now but also not losing the sense of what got us here and what makes us so special and unique is a really difficult balance at times and mm. it's important that we just don't become a historic relic or a museum that people like looking around because it's pretty we still need to be relevant to the community and provide things that they need and they want and I think post-COVID that's even more important in a way that people need somewhere they feel safe to come and mm. and enjoy and 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 want to be at so um so I think that's an important consideration as well and that's a big struggle for us because often you need money and resources to be able to deliver different projects or reach a wider audience and mm -hmm. So you're spending a lot of your time trying to find ways to increase the revenue so that you can do these other projects, but then that doesn't make you time to do the projects. So it's the usual joy, but yeah. we all get there in the end, I think. We just have to be patient. But um, I do have to say, though, that the ILA collectively um, over the last few years has been amazing. Their support and the willingness to share ideas and information mm. um, has really strengthened, I think. Mm. We've become much more of a unit I'd like to think and I hope that continues to develop yeah and also it's interesting and, and inspiring I think to see all of the work that other independent libraries are doing with their collections and and their collections are so different and unique to the places I think the um what was the the linen hall who had, mm. they have an amazing kind of collection of Irish political pamphlets or posters that they've they're True. working with and you know your Cornish collection and all of these kind of really the ways that independent libraries have found to work with these collections and make them accessible, whether that's digitally, whether that's through exhibitions, um, is really fantastic. But yes, talking of the the future, one of the projects that you've worked on recently is the Penwith Futures book, which was really um, one of the projects that I found most exciting. Uh, <laughs> looking at your website. So what, what was the Penrith Futures book and, and how did it come about? Um, it's still very much an ongoing project that runs the course of this year. Um, it started, originated around the time of COP26 last year when we all became even more acutely aware of the, the climate emergency and the challenges that face the world, and, but also will have a really profound impact locally. I think in Cornwall, we really, we're surrounded by all this loveliness so we can almost see what might happen in the future and, and all the risks and everything that, that come with with climate emergencies so um we've created something called the penwith futures book project 
So over the course of this year, we're asking all of those who live or work or have an interest in Penrith to think about their vision for the future of the land and the community and put pen to paper or create some art or poetry or anything that expresses their vision about how we might deal with this and, and move on into the future. Um, so we're gathering submissions and, and continuing to do so. And we, at the end of it, will create a book for our archive collection um, that shares all of those, those views and images and artworks and poems, um, which we can share with the community, but also share with decision makers in the mm. area as well. And then keep it as a resource for future iterations to see as well. So. I really like this project because I think it, it, we're at this stage as well of thinking how can we translate the kind of original, the original purpose of this library um, into, into the 21st century? How can we remain kind of relevant and, yeah. and useful for people? And I think that this project is a really clever way of encapsulating that because you're, you know, you're, you are supporting local creativity and the Cornish literary tradition, you're um you know you're taking in local history and local voices um and you're you know producing a piece of work that can be you know seen and read by anyone um, and you're also you're also looking towards the future and you're looking at sustainability yeah. and you're looking at contemporary issues and how you know you can uh have an effect on those which i think is fantastic oh thank you yeah we're really proud of it and we we, we hope we can pull this off we're um, yeah. about to start our approach to schools and particular groups to try and get everyone involved and, and get as many submissions as we can. So, yeah. so, I mean, I think it's on everybody's mind and everyone's got an idea about it. it it's, as, it's, as, it's as much as or as wide as um, thinking about, you know, climate change and global warming to mm. even the whole issue around second homes in Cornwall and mm. sustainability of communities and villages and things as well. So there's a lot of issues here that will affect a lot of people so mm. and everyone's got a view so um, yeah. we can capture them as a point in time but then also it's adding a new piece of information to our archive yeah um, which I think is really special so yeah no it's interesting thinking about how you how you archive the library today mm. you know, I think that's another really interesting project how you because we have we I mean we here have amazing members archives of of um all of our old members and and the kind of history of the library and then post kind of 1970 nothing <laughs> it's so true yeah even our library minutes don't sort of give us the information that the minutes yeah. of 1818 did and I agree it's around the 60s and the 70s when all these names are sort of on lists but we don't know who they are and we don't really know what happened in the library yeah um, it's really sad in a way so we're trying to think of ways to sort of capture more the life of the library as much as mm. everywhere else as well because I think yeah. it sometimes gets a bit forgotten doesn't it yeah and the, you know, the 100 years you might want to know how the library got through the pandemic and well exactly yeah but there may not be much written down about that so yeah it's important to think about these things yeah well definitely uh for anyone listening keep your eyes peeled for the Penrith Futures book I can't I can't wait to Aww. have a look at it actually um so yeah I guess thank you so much for talking to me this has been so fascinating and it's always nice to talk to someone who works in another independent library because you do have those kind of like yes that's exactly the same for us moments <laughs> it's true <laughs> which is really nice no it does remind me that yeah I'm not the only 
person working in a bonkers world yeah <laughs> bonkers but awesome <laughs> yeah exactly um so I guess to wrap it up do you have any any kind of um anything you'd like to share with people of, of information of how they can find out more about you or upcoming events um or anything anything you'd like to let people know about um yeah well there's a couple of ways that you can keep in touch if you if you keep an eye on our, our social media platforms on instagram and facebook and twitter we post a lot of pretty pictures of the library there's also pretty yeah. pictures from the collections as well so it's a good way of um, seeing seeing this beautiful place and also on our website we even have a gallery of images from the library there too as well as well as lots of information about the library um but also we have just started and bear with us because our cinematographic skills aren't quite Jane Campion's yet we're, we're starting to film some of the talks we do um, mm. and they're now available online to have a look at as well so you can see sort of a flavor of what some of the local talks are about and, and what some Cornish history while you're at it so so yeah and if you're ever all the way down here in Penzance I'd just everyone's very welcome to pop in and have a look around and, and say hello Wonderful. Okay. Thank you so much, Lisa. That was, yeah, really great. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been, it's been a real joy. This has been a podcast from the Leeds Library. Links to more information about our guests and any works talked about can be found in the description. If you'd like to find out more about the Leeds Library and any of our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.theleedslibrary.org.uk or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook at the Leeds Library. Thank you for listening and keep your eyes and ears peeled for more tales from the Leeds Library in our future episodes released every Wednesday.